Okay, good evening everybody and I hope everybody is uh, comfortable as we're going to start and welcome to lesson number three of This Can Happen. Just a quick reminder, first of all, that next week being that it's Shavuos on Monday and Tuesday, so we will not be having class on Tuesday night. We will continue the class the following week, but you're of course all welcome to join us for Shavuos. To hear the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. This is the only place you can hear the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So uh, that's going to be Monday morning at 10.30 a.m. 10 a.m. is services. 10.30 a.m. is the Ten Commandments. And then Tuesday is Yisker. It's the second day of Shavuos. As we begin today's class, we are all very well aware of the uh, turbulence and the unfortunate events that are unfolding in the land of Israel our hearts and prayers, and we are going to dedicate today's class for the safety and the security for the people in the land of Eretz Yisrael. As we know, it's a plan that God tells us, Hashem's eyes are on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, and may continue to be God's blessings and God's speed and watching over the people there for safety and their security. So before we begin today, we're going to start with a little exercise here. And a little exercise you can find on page uh, 3.1, just a little reminder if anybody still wants books and didn't get them, let me know so we can make sure we get them. Choose a mitzvah, and we'll just read it for those that don't see in front of them. Choose a mitzvah that you do regularly, whether it's attend Shabbat services, keep kosher, give charity, put on tefillin, study Torah, any mitzvah that you do. Ask yourself the following question. Why do you do the mitzvah? Select one of the following. You, saw, you can find this on page 97. Because God said so. It makes my life orderly and stable. It makes my life more spiritual. It, makes, it strengthens my Jewish identity. It feels right. It makes the, other world, it makes the world a better place. I believe that God will reward me for doing the mitzvahs. I'm afraid to disobey God. Anybody can identify with any of these reasons? Yeah, okay. What about, does anybody have any other reason why they may do it? All seem like good reasons. Okay. Well, look at this exercise right now. And as we conclude class today, we're going to come back to this exercise and see if our answer, remember what your answer is now. And let's think back if your answer is going to be any different after we finish today's class. But first, let's talk about and let's digress and let's take a moment to talk about what we spoke about in last week's Torah reading. And what we spoke about in last week's class, one of the fundamental beliefs that Maimonides talks about when he, he says the 13 cardinal beliefs and uh, principles of faith that a person should believe in, besides about anticipating for the coming of Moshiach, the, one of the beliefs that he mentioned was the idea that there are reward and punishment to the mitzvah that there are consequences to our actions, that our things that we do make a difference. And we see this already in last week's Torah reading, in the second of last week's Torah reading, where God begins by telling the Jewish people, Im we see this in text number one, if you will follow my statutes and keep my commandments and observe them, I will provide your rains in their proper time, the earth will give its produce, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. So we usually, we look about as a, what, you know, so what's a reward? You worked hard, 
you did this monumental project and therefore you're going to get some type of prize and payment for good behavior. Over here what we see is, seemingly God is telling us the same idea. If you follow God's edicts and you follow what God told you to do, there's a reward waiting for you, whether it may be in this world, the materialistic reward that God talks about in last week's Torah reading, or in the world hereafter, in the heaven, you'll be have a nice place in heaven. So basically, what some may look at it, as we are doing the mitzvah to be able to accumulate brownie points so when we can get upstairs, we can have a nice cushiony place up there. But it's an interesting thing that if we look a little deeper in the text, and we look a little deeper into what our sages tell us, and over here we're going to go back to the Tanya that we spoke about last week, we will see there's a whole new layer of truly understanding why we do a mitzvah. Now let's see it in text number two. Text number two. The ultimate perfection of the age of Mashiach and the resurrection, namely the revelation of the infinite radiance of God in this physical world, depends on our actions and our work throughout the duration of exile. The reward of a mitzvah, listen to these words, is the result of the mitzvah itself. This is because with the performance of a mitzvah, one elicits God's infinite radiance so that it descends into and is integrated within the physical matter of this world. So the Tanya over here makes four statements to summarize. The Tanya over here is telling us, number one, that the key to understanding of all the generations, activities, and mitzvahs that they've done, and culminating with the time of the coming of Mashiach, is that the ultimate world of perfection, the ultimate perfection is this time, the coming of Mashiach. So the world of Mashiach is the ultimate state of perfection, and all our mitzvahs lead to that spot. So while we talk about Mashiach and the era of Mashiach, as we spoke about in the past two classes, is a time and an era where the world will have peace, tranquility, health, longevity, and so on. The soul of it, as we discussed, and the significant developments of the spiritual revolution, as we continue to say, is that all those concealments will now be revealed. As we discussed, the world olam comes from the world concealment, and revealing the true nature of the existence is what's going to happen in the time of the coming of Mashiach. The process that we spoke about, the Tanya calls it, is making this home a world for God, making this world a home for God. And how is this all achieved, the Tanya tells us? All through doing a mitzvah. So what is a mitzvah in essence doing? Our actions during the time of exile, that means our actions currently right now, perfect the world for the time of the coming of Mashiach, which is the ultimate perfection, and ultimately make a home for God in these lowly worlds. That's what the Tanya seemingly is telling us. The Tanya makes one more point, as I brought out in the second paragraph, which is, the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. What does that mean? What does it mean, the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself? And over here, it comes to tell us two different, it comes a, a new idea. When we talk about Moshiach, Moshiach is not just a reward for the mitzvahs that we do today, but it's a result of the mitzvahs today. What's the difference between a reward and a result? When we talk about a reward, let's take a scenario. A guy works for 20 years, 
after 20 years working in a sneaker factory, whatever it may be, he has enough money because of that to buy a house, to buy a car, and ultimately maybe to retire. That's his reward for working very hard for that amount of time. But what about a guy who goes to the store and buys timber, buys bricks, buys all the different materials to build a house? His building of the house is not a reward from, building, from what he's done. It's a result of the work that he's accumulated and he accomplished. So a reward, so to speak, to, uh, to summarize it, a reward is something external from what I've done, while a reward is a direct a result, I'm sorry, is a direct consequence or effect of what I've done and what I accomplished. What the Tanya is telling over here is, the act of doing a mitzvah is not just a good deed, that God says, wow, now you deserve a prize, I'm going to give you Moshiach. On the contrary. The act of doing a mitzvah creates a home for God, results in making this world a spiritual place, and bring this world to ultimate perfection. So the mitzvah, so to speak, the timber, the bricks, to creating this home for God. Every mitzvah is another brick. Every mitzvah is another piece of wood in creating this beautiful edifice. And once we can accumulatively do all the mitzvahs, we then have built the structure and made this home for God. So each mitzvah fashions another piece in our lives and ultimately a component of the world of, of making this home for God in the world. But how is that? How does that work? So let's go back to what we spoke about. Concealment versus revelation. But what does it mean, concealment versus revelation, when we talk about a home for God? If God is all over, right? We say God is up and below to the sides. God is everywhere. So then what do I have to make a home for God if God is everywhere? If God is everywhere, He's above and below the same. He's in every single spot. What does it mean I'm making a home for God? Why do I need to make a home for God? So what does it mean to make a home? What is your home different to you than anything else? Why, does it, why do we call in the Talmud one who doesn't have a home is not a human being? What's a home? By definition. And not only that, you can go to somebody's house, but you're still not at home. What does it mean you're at home? You're at home is a place where you kick off your shoes, you feel comfortable to do whatever you want. That's your home. My home is my space. You can walk into a person's home and you can look in the walls and the paintings and you can know what kind of person it is. A home tells you about the individual. In another place in Hasidism, it explains, in fact, that a person has three different types of garments. I know I'm going to sidetrack, but it's an interesting thought and you think about it. It's not only a Hasidic idea, but it's really, it helps you understand people. A person has three types of garments each one more external than the other, but they all reflect. What is a garment? A garment reflects on the individual. You have your home, which is very external to the extent that not only is it for you, but you can also let other people in it. But your home describes who you are. It's a garment that expresses your feelings, your colors, your vibrancy, your mood. That's what your home is. You reflect it in the way you build your home, in the way you paint your home, in the way you decorate your home, and things like that. Your clothing also is a garment and describes who you are by the type of clothing, what kind of clothing, if you're more uh, artsy, if you're more liberally, more conservative, all the different things you can find in, even in the way you dress. 
But the difference is, oh, when you're wearing the pair of pants, nobody else can wear it. When it comes to more internal type of garment is the food you eat. That becomes internalized within the person, but it also expresses by what kind of food you eat, what kind of person you are. It's just an interesting sidebar. But talking about a home, what is a home? A home, by definition, is a place where a person describes, feels comfortable. You're fully yourself. There's nothing stopping. It's a place where you are exactly revealed and take that in any expression you want to put it. It's where you are. When we talk about a home for God, what does it mean a home for God? The same exact idea. A place where God is fully revealed. Where there's no concealment whatsoever. Where God feels comfortable. Not only where God feels comfortable, but a place where you can see God comfortable so to speak. What was the biggest example of a home for God that we knew about? We didn't see it, but we talk about it in Scripture and in Talmud, is the Holy Temple. What was the Holy Temple? The Holy Temple was a place where a person was able to see spirituality. Literally. You were able to see the miraculous events that happened in front of your eyes. There was no denying it was a spiritual place. In a, that's in a macro way. But in a, in a micro way, in a macro way, in a big way, is when Mashiach is going to come. We talk about that revelation. Making a home for God means seeing the revelation in the greatest manifestation. So how come Mount Sinai, for example, when he revealed himself, is not a place that... Uh... Very good. Mount Sinai, actually, it's a separate discussion, but Mount Sinai, because God said specifically it was only for the Ten Commandments, and it's not a holy place. Okay, While he, Temple he, Mount, he kind of yes, but Temple Mount was a place where God said, "This is going to be holy for now and forever." It's an interesting, the whole separate discussion. There's an interesting Hasidic discussion talking about the difference of the holiness that happened on Mount Sinai and the holiness that happens in the Holy Temple, because the holiness in the Holy Temple was something which fused the physical and spiritual. By Mount Sinai, it only began, so then the fusion didn't happen yet. But it's for Shavuos. It's a very good discussion. <laughs> So we'll talk about it on Shavuos. Remind me. Next week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so when we look about it, let's understand a little bit better what this means, concealment and revelation in relationship to a home. Take, for example, what do you see over here? Piano in a hole? Huh? It's a pian- it looks like a piano. So now let's imagine for a moment... Imagine for a moment there are three parallel universes. Okay? There are three types of universes. One, universe number one is our world that you know very well. Universe number two is exactly our world, but there is no music in the world. Its entire history, its entire concept of music, notes, doesn't exist. It was never played. Nobody ever heard a word of music before. Universe number three has no humans. It's only populated by woodpeckers. Okay? Now take an example. Now place object A, what you call this, what is this? A piano, you called it, right? And let's put it in universe one. What happens in universe one? A person walks by, he knows it's a piano, he knows it's music. If he's very musically inclined, if it would be my son, he wouldn't be able to keep his fingers off it, and he would have to play it. That's the way they are, right? And everybody gathers around. He would play and everybody would gather around to listen. Now take, you, take this object and put it in 
universe number two, where there was no music, nobody ever heard of music, nobody saw music, nobody ever listened to music. What would it be? It would be a table. You'd use it to hang clothes, put picture frames on it. If somebody's a little more mechanically inclined, he will take it apart and see these little buttons here and make noises with it. But anybody know what it is? The primary function of the piano, would it be used? Absolutely not. Use it for storage, like ask anybody what they use a treadmill for or something, right? (laughs) And maybe somebody will conclude that this can make noise. But finally, come to universe number three, where there's no inhabitants, only woodpeckers. What would they use it for? Something to peck on. They'll have something to eat wood. But the difference... Now look at this over here. Did the object change? No, the piano stayed the same piano. What changed? The revelation changed. The awareness changed. The awareness from universe 1 to universe 2 to universe 3. What small slight difference? Nobody knew about music. And because they didn't know about music, so therefore they didn't know what to use about it. The revealed function, the revelation of what this piano is meant to be, wasn't revealed. The moment I tell the people, look, there's a concept of music, look what a piano can do, all of a sudden their eyes open and says, wow, that's what it's for. But did the item change? Item didn't change. Our world is like a piano. We can experience the world like a bunch of woodpeckers and just peck at it and utilize our time and eat and enjoy. And as the song goes, eat and enjoy for tomorrow you die, you're a woodpecker. What did you do? Nothing. You pecked at the world, you enjoyed it, and nothing else happened. And sometimes we're a little more sophisticated in this world, and we start analyzing, and we get engrossed, and we start seeing this, and start philosophizing, and theorizing, and looking at different things in the world. But have we truly experienced what the world is? Have we truly revealed within the world its absolute purpose and recognition of what it is? Finally, we come to learn to play the piano. This is when we truly experience the world and see the world for the ultimate purpose of why God gave it to us and why we're here in this world. Revealing that there was a something that we haven't previously seen. And how does this happen? Only through the mitzvahs. The mitzvahs give us the glasses, show us the reason and give us the ability And these are the tools that we can penetrate those layers of concealment. Penetrate those layers and all of a sudden there are the tools that help us see what the piano is. They're the music nodes. They're the guide. They're the music teacher that teaches that this big piece of wood is not just a piece of wood. And it's not just something that makes noise, but it's a musical piece that brings beautiful harmony. It's part of an orchestra. And it makes this beautiful music that you've never imagined you could ever hear. This is the beauty of mitzvahs. This is what mitzvahs do. And mitzvahs reveal and actualize the true nature of our existence. How does this happen? You say, what am I doing? How is that possible? I'm putting a coin into the charity. What did I do? It sounds all grandeur. But where do you see that? So let's see the next text. Text number three. And the next text explains to us how a mitzvah affects the revelation of God in this world and says as follows. 
And this is a quote from the Tanya, continuing from the Tanya. Through the performance of a mitzvah, a person causes a flood of God's infinite light to descend from above and to be enclosed within the corporality of the world, within an object that was previously under the dominion of and whose existence depended on the spiritual forces that obscure the godly reality. This includes all the things that are kosher and permissible with which a mitzvah is performed. For example, the parchment used in tefillin, or a mezuzah, or a Torah scroll, an esrog, a citron, so long as it is not from a tree whose first three years, which are not biblically prescribed. Money given to charity, so long as it has not been dishonestly acquired. And similarly with other material things, when one uses these objects to perform God's mitzvah, they thereby fulfill his expressed desire, their vivifying force ascends and it's absorbed in God's infinite light. More specifically, what we have over here is a mitzvah accomplishes the goal in two ways. So what we see over here, what the first Chabad Rebbe is explaining to us, number one is, the moment I take a materialistic item, the moment I take a piece of parchment or an esrog or a lulav or a piece of wool and make it into, into a tzitzit or take a leather and may put it into tefillin, I've now taken a materialistic item, I've taken the world and I have revealed its true intent, its ultimate purpose. I have shown that I can play the piano. But how is this done? In two ways. So there are two primary reasons, there are two functions, if we want to call it, for of a mitzvah. And this is a quote from the Rebbe in text number 4, page 104. And he says as follows. There are two aspects to every mitzvah. One aspect is the fact that every mitzvah that we do, we fulfill God's will. In this regard, there is no difference between one mitzvah and the next. An individual fulfills a mitzvah not because of its unique qualities and its unique effect, but simply to carry out God's will. The aspect of this mitzvah is aptly demonstrated in the observation of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi that if we were commanded to chop wood, we would do it in obedience to the divine will with the same enthusiasm as we fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin. The second aspect of a mitzvah is that each mitzvah brings a spiritual refinement to each individual performing the mitzvah. Similarly, the mitzvah brings a spiritual refinement to the object in which it's performed and ultimately refines the world. The difference between these two elements is that the first aspect, all specifics of the mitzvah are irrelevant. All mitzvahs are equal, for they are equally God's will. By contrast, the second element highlights the significance of each specific detail, for each mitzvah brings a dissimilar branch of spiritual enhancement to the soul, and it refines the world in a different way. The two aspects of this mitzvah are two ways how we can refine the world, and are two ways how we make this world a home for God. What is the first mitzvah aspect? Let's go through it. The first aspect is reaching the lowest of all levels. The ultimate concealment. What's the first thing you need to do to reveal something? Open it. Open it. What's the hardest thing to do to open it? I need to use all my muscle to be able to take off the schmutz. Before I even get to polishing a diamond, what do I need to do? I need to dig for the diamond. I got to get the diamond. Only then can I polish it. And digging for the diamond, it doesn't make a difference if it's a 10 carat diamond or a 1 carat diamond. I have to do the same digging. It's the polishing and the cutting that makes a difference when it comes to what size diamond. 
The same thing is also we see with the physical world and how we approach it. There's function number A, which is the general fulfillment of the mitzvah. And then there's the specific commandment. When it comes to the general fulfillment of a mitzvah, I do a mitzvah because God told me to do it. Subservience. Doesn't make a difference if it's a mitzvah to put on tefillin or if it's a mitzvah to keep Shabbos. For that matter, if God would tell me to chop wood every day for an hour, it would also not matter. Because I'm only doing it because God told me to do it. Doesn't make a difference what it is. From that, from that perspective, how many mitzvahs needed to be? For that perspective, only one mitzvah God had to tell me. Follow me. Do whatever I say. It's like my kids tell me when they come to camp, the head counselor says, I only have one rule. What's the one rule? Listen to their rules. In that rule, it means other people that get a little more excited, they say, I only have one rule. It's respect. Respect what I say, respect what I do, respect the place. It's only one rule. If it's only subservience, I don't need 613 commandments. I just need one commandment. But that's the first step of a mitzvah. That's the first objective of a mitzvah. The first objective of a mitzvah is the function of a mitzvah is to penetrate the concealment. I need to dig through the ground to get the diamond. The only way I can do that is subservience. I got to peel the layers off. I got to realize that I'm a nothing. Because what's the world? Think about it. What did we talk about? Last week we spoke about, and we talk about in general, the world is a physical, materialistic, selfish place. The world is a place where God allowed an individual to think of independence that is not dependent on God. I can do what I want. It's all up to me. I don't have to answer to anybody. So what's step number one for making a home for God, for revealing godliness? Is to take away that concealment, pry away at the concealment. What is that? By saying, yes, God, I'm all yours. I'm not for myself. I'm not independent. I am dependent. By telling God, yes, a mitzvah means I'm willing to connect to you. I recognize a greater being. I'm subservient. It's not all about me. It's not about a selfish world. I'm going to be selfless, which means I understand that there is something greater than myself. When God gives us a mitzvah and decides and chooses a particular action, when we do this action and when we engage in this action, what are we saying? It's not about myself. It's an instrument that God is giving us so we can show and connect with the divine will of God. It is saying that my own existence is not an end for itself. The physical resources that I have, I don't control. I own and control, but they're only there for me to be able to use them to connect to God. In this respect, it doesn't make a difference what the mitzvah is. If it's a mitzvah of tefillin, or if it's a mitzvah of Shabbos, or a mitzvah of helping my friend cross the street. Because if God put me in this world to help somebody else to connect to God, every single mitzvah is doing that exact same thing. Peering that concealment, revealing the godliness in the actual thing that's there. Every single mitzvah is the same, whether it's reciting a prayer or doing grocery shopping for your parents. They're exactly the same mitzvah. Because they're both subservience to God. They all have one thing, one thing in common. With all these actions, we're fulfilling God's will. We're doing a mitzvah, that's because God commanded me to do it. I am making my life, the world, a place that I'm, and everything I'm doing 
an instrument that God has given me to use. Does it make a difference what it is? That's the one way of looking at it. But then there's a second part of the mitzvah. And the second part of the mitzvah is that every single mitzvah makes this world a home of God. How? By refining and elevating that particular item, that phenomenon. That means God has given every single one of us a unique talent and a unique quality. I have something that I have that you don't have, and you have something that I don't have. I cannot take your place, you cannot take my place. The food that I eat, I have a responsibility to elevate. The parchment that I use, I have a responsibility to elevate. And every single mitzvah has its qualifications and its way of how we can elevate it and utilize it for the right purpose. That means this piece of world may be a physical object, but within this physical object there is a certain quality that needs to be uplifted, needs to be engaged, and needs to be refined. And in this regard, of course, every mitzvah is different. The mitzvah of prayer has to be done one way, and the mitzvah of putting on tefillin has to be done another way. Not only that, every single mitzvah helps me understand and appreciate. For example, observing the Shabbat instills within us an awareness that the world was created for a purpose. It prevents us from becoming consumed and thinking that our job and our career is what's going to make us or make us. Then when it comes to the laws of family purity, it also refines our sexual life. It ensures us that we treat our spouse and another person with respect, not an object. The mitzvah of charity cultivates our being, our concept of compassion for others, our sense of communal responsibility. In every single one of the mitzvahs, there's another way how we have to be able to view it and see it, what it does. In fact, our sages put it this way in the Mishnah. It says it right here, text number five. Does God truly mind if a person slaughters an animal from the throat or slaughters it from the back or of the neck? Rather, the mitzvahs were given only to refine the individual who performed them. What's the Talmud telling here? The Medrash, I'm sorry. The Medrash is telling us there's a mitzvah of slaughtering an animal. The Torah says you have to slaughter an animal, and it dictates how. If you want to eat meat, you have the proper knife that cannot have any niches. It has to be done that it cuts the, the, um, the esophagus and the trachea at the same time, and all the different details that are in it. One may ask, does God really care about the details? Does God really care how I do it? If it's done like this or done like that, so it's a little bit off, no big deal. What does God really care? So from the first perspective that it's only out of subservience, you can have a point, as long as I'm uplifting it. But from the second perspective, where I'm doing it to refine the animal, to uplift the animal, to change me, because it's there to be able to change the way I feel to it, of course there's a difference. Because every single detail in the mitzvah has a purpose, has a reason. And whether it's not to cause pain to the animal, or whether it's to show respect to the animal, even though you're eating it, regardless of what the reason may be. The very fact that God told me a certain perimeter, a box of how it should be done, means that there's a reason and a purpose and an elevation and a refinement that I am doing specifically when I do it this way. Take, for example, in a, a different way. I want to bring somebody flowers. Bringing some flowers may be a nice gesture. An idea, it's a nice gesture, bringing somebody flowers. It shows that you like the person. It shows that you have a relationship with the person, and that's why you bring them flowers. But what happens if the person's allergic to flowers? What are you actually doing? 
Not only you're not helping them, you're hurting them. A mitzvah, God says, you know what, I want you to bring flowers. I want you to have a relationship. So it's great, I want to bring flowers because we have a relationship. But then the relationship also depends on how you cultivate the relationship. Each thing has a specific way. So you say, I want to be able to do, have a relationship with God by screaming in the, in, the, in the forest. That's not what God asked me to do. It's wonderful if that makes you feel good. That shows subservience. But in the particular mitzvah, I have not done anything. Our sages even take it a step further. It's because the second function... There are so many mitzvahs, and why there are 613 mitzvahs? Because every single mitzvah covers another aspect of our life. And here are some samples, the variety of mitzvahs that are mentioned here. Look in text number 6. God did not leave anything in this world without providing the people of Israel with means of performing a mitzvah with it. And he says as follows. For example, a person proceeding to plow, must he do not plow without an ox and donkey together? Similarly, if one wishes to sow... You can't sow hybrid plantings. Reap when you reap, you have to leave for the poor. Thresh, you don't muzzle the eggs while threshing. Knead, knead dough, you have to forgive challah. Remove eggs from nest, you have to send away the mother bird. Slaughter a wild animal, cover its blood with soil. Plant a tree, observe the yarla. Bury a deceased relative, do not mourn excessively. Take a haircut, don't shave the corners of your head. Build a house, install a fence. Wear a garment, make sure there's no, it has to have scissors. So in anything you do in life, there's always a commandment for it. It was once a... Uh, they say a story that once the sultan, who was very friendly with the Jews, and the imam was trying, who hated the Jews, was trying to find some type of way to gang up and show the sultan how the Jews are foolish and stupid and everything else, and they can't think for themselves. So he tells the sultan, he says, these Sioux Jews, every step they do, they have another law. Even to tie their shoes, they have to tie the left shoe before the right shoe. Everything they do, there's a law. Look how many books of all. Tell me any other religion in the world that you know that has five books with commentaries and laws and on and on and on and on. So the Sultan looks at him and says, I don't understand. Especially coming from you, a man of religion. Isn't it beautiful that every single thing and part of our life to the smallest detail is dictated by God? Not only that, every single thing we do in life, we have an opportunity to connect to God. And as the Medrash says over here, every single thing in life, the reason why it has a connection, every physical item has a mitzvah, so we can uplift every single physical item in this world. So we can make this world a home for God by doing the mitzvah. So to summarize what we have over here is, very clearly, there's two parts to a mitzvah. Every mitzvah, action, counter-reacts inherently selfish self-perception, of the physical reality and reinforces that truth that it exists only to serve a higher purpose, the subservience that we mentioned. And number two, in a specific way, so we have the two concepts, the general reason of why we do a mitzvah and the specific reason why we do a mitzvah. Each mitzvah makes a particular part of this world more spiritual, refined, more generous, more aware, more respectful, more loving, and more connected. So what we see from over here, the mitzvahs that we do cover two parts. The general subservience, penetrating the darkness, and number two, refining and changing every single thing, every particular part of the world. So what we see over here is that each mitzvah action transforms a piece of the world to become engaged in making it a home for God. But all of you probably have a question and say, listen, I'm only one person. 
How many mitzvahs can I do? How many items can I eat? Okay, if I spend all day eating, then I'm refining a lot of pieces of food. But how much already? How do we do it? After all, we're only a very small fraction of the world's resources and are using for mitzvahs. What percentage of the world, of the world's money, think about it, is donated to charity? Yes, there's a lot of people that give charity. But can you say that every dollar is used for charity? How then can we refine the entire world to make it a home for God? Or how much parchment is used for Torah scrolls already? Think about that. How much of our brain power do we already use for the study of Torah? Out of the 24 hours of the day, how much time are we actively spending time doing mitzvot? And the truth is that every act we do, if you think about it, is a product of many, many, many different actions. Why is that? They once had a guy, you can look it up on YouTube, it's pretty interesting, it's called How to Make a $1,500 Sandwich in Six Months. This guy decided that he's going to take a sandwich instead of buying bread. He's going to do everything from scratch. He's going to get the seedlings and they make the kernels and grind it and make the flour and then get the bread and do all the different things from the beginning to the end. It costed him, instead of $2 to make the sandwich, $1,500 and it took six months. Why? Because there are so many components into the single slice of bread that you have. He was very hungry. Here, I hope he didn't wait for it. Here's a little similar situation, just a little cute video of how they make a pencil, just to give you how many components go into making a pencil. Muster an army of workers, machines, factories, ships, trains, and endless natural supplies. What do you get? A pencil. In 1958, Leonard Reed penned a classic to document the mind-boggling diversity of materials and skilled labors required for a single manufactured object. He detailed the production of a pencil, speaking in the pencil's voice. My family tree begins with a cedar of street grain. Contemplate all the saws and trucks and rope and the countless other gear used in harvesting and carving the cedar logs to the railroad site. Think of all the persons and the numberless skills that went into the fabrication of these logging tools. The mining of ore, the making of steel and its refinement into saws, axes, motors, the growing of hemp and bringing it through all the stages of heavy and strong rope. Reed describes railroad networks and communication systems that bring the logs to mills, and the millwork that produces thin slats. He asks, how many skills went into supplying the heat, the light and power, the belts, motors, and all the other things a mill requires? Reed includes the workers who constructed the hydro plant that supplies the mill's power, trains that transport the slats, a factory that caused millions to erect and equip with brilliant machines that slit the slats and insert the lead, and the lead itself produced by mixing graphite mined in Sri Lanka with clay from Mississippi and treating it with Mexican wax. The pencils receive six coats of lacquer and are labeled with carbon black mixed with resins. An eraser holder made of zinc and copper is attached, and black nickel rings are added. Finally, the pencil's eraser is a rubber-like product made with Indonesian rapeseed oil, 
Italian pumice, sulfur chloride, vulcanizing and accelerating agents, and cadmium sulfide. One pencil, millions of dollars, dozens of countries, thousands of miles. But we can add something radical that Reed never considered. What if this pencil belongs to David, who uses it for Torah classes? It helps him observe the mitzvah of Torah study. That changes everything. Divinity, generated by his mitzvah, illuminates his soul and body, and elevates the pencil as well. That powerful, godly light travels back along the pencil's production route, elevating the factory, railroads, minerals, investments, skills, lives, and all that Reed so vividly described. Think about that the next time you offer charity. Light a Shabbat candle or wind to fill in around your arm. With each mitzvah act, so much of this world is connected with divinity. So what we see very clearly, the same is true with every action we do, with every object we have. Especially in the world that we live in where everything's so interconnected and so everything is in a international level. Take, for example, you're holding a book that you're reading. The book may be printed in China. The program that was made for it was made in India. The algorithm was written in Australia. And everything comes together. And because of that, you have an ability to read from a book with the chart, with the ink, with everything that's on it. So it's not necessarily the actual paper that you're using that you're refining to God, but because you are using this book for a mitzvah, you have taken the whole process and made it a home for God. In this way, every single mitzvah action that we do in this world is a step closer in making this world a home for Hashem, a home for God. Exactly what it is, the messianic state of absolute goodness and perfection. So remember we had that exercise in the beginning of the class. And we said, what was the reason why we do a mitzvah? And we had many different choices. So let's look back at that exercise and, what, and see, what would you say now? Do I do a mitzvah because God said so? It makes my life orderly and stable. It makes my life spiritual. It strengthens my Jewish identity. It makes it feel right. It makes the world a better place. I believe that God will reward me for doing mitzvahs. I'm afraid to disobey it. And which one would you answer now? The answer would probably be all of the above. So if you say why you do a mitzvah, first we can answer all of the above. Or we can give another answer. And the other answer is also basically all of the above, but we do an all mitzvah in order to bring Mashiach. Because ultimately what every mitzvah is doing, whatever mitzvah accomplishes, is that I should now bring the world to its perfection, make this world a home for God. How do I make the home? When will the world be a home for God? When Mashiach comes. What is the mitzvah doing? Bringing about that ultimate revelation. Which brings us to the next step. We spoke about the idea that when we study Torah and when we do mitzvahs, we become partners with God in the work of the creation. This concept is discussed a lot in Hasidism. What is the difference between a partner and an employee? And we'll talk about that for a moment. So what does it mean that we become partners with God in creation? Our sages tell us, if you look in text number 7, the Torah considers those who recite the passage of Vayichulu that we say in the Friday night Eve prayer as if they have become partners with God in the creation. 
What does it mean that I'm a partner in God and the creation? And to be able to understand why we become a partner with God in creation helps us understand as well why the belief in Mashiach is so important. And our question was in the beginning of this course, why is this one of the primary beliefs of Judaism and why is it mentioned so much throughout Judaism? So imagine two people are in business. One's an employee and one's a partner. At 9 to 5, if you were to walk into the store between 9 and 5, you would almost see no difference between the person that's behind the counter who is the partner and the person who's the employee. They're both checking out bags. They're both putting things on the registers. They're both making sure the store is safe. They're both making sure people pay for their product. But when do you see the difference between the partner and the employee? 501. And it's all, huh? 501. 501. <laughs> You'll notice something, how they go about doing their job. But the distinct difference is, as we'll go back and we asked, what's the difference between when we talk about why the belief of Mashiach is so important? And the answer that we gave, and the answer is, and we saw that the belief of Mashiach is so important, is because every time we do a mitzvah, what are we doing? We're bringing Mashiach. But why? Why is it? Why can't I just do my job, do the mitzvahs, and without knowing that this is going to bring Mashiach? Why do I have to constantly say it during the time of the prayers and throughout, I'm always talking about the reason why I'm doing this is because we want to make a home for God. Just do your job. What's the difference? So let's go back into the analogy of a business partner, a business employee and a partner. You ever notice, if you ever work for a big corporation, whenever you walk in, or not only in a big corporation, you walk inside and you always have the mission statement all over the building. Every employee, you work for Geico. I know somebody told me work for Geico. They make them watch all the ads. I think that's the hardest part of the job, right? They have to know what is the mission of the state, of the, of the company. Why? What do they care? You do your job. You're answering, you're a programmer. What do I care what the mission of Microsoft is? Because every single person that works there, they know that their specific job is leading to something. They're a chain in the line. Because their ultimate job is to reach to the goal of what that mission statement is. That's the reason why a lot of companies today call their employees partners and not just employees. That's if they get. That's if they're sharing with them. <laughs> they're up, which would, which today it's becoming more common that they are sharing. It's called profit sharing with their with their employees. But the concept is theoretically you can do your job without knowing your mission statement. But when you know your mission statement and you know what the company is all about, you're more energized. You feel more of a passion. It's not just a job, but you feel like you're part of a global effect that you're changing. When you're working for Microsoft as a programmer, you can think, okay, I'm just a programmer, typing in numbers, creating algorithms. But if the mission of Microsoft is to bring PCs to every home, so every child should have access to be able to have a computer. So now when you're making that algorithm, you're saying, wow, because of me, a child in Africa is going to be able to connect to his grandmother in Tunisia. And... And I feel accomplished. It gives you more purpose to what you're doing. You know, a lot of times people have different jobs and they want to find purpose to what they're doing. It's because they only look at the pushing paper. But if you're pushing paper for a greater purpose, it's like when somebody asked, the janitor in a building, he was cleaning the floor. And the oh, CEO went over to him and thanked him for doing this job. He said, well, I'm just cleaning floors. He says, no, because when a person walks into the building, what's the first thing they see? If it's a clean floor, they're going to want to do business here. 
If it's a dirty floor, they say it's a dump. Why should it's probably not the right place? So if you see that every single person's part of the mission, it gives them momentum, excitement, and a thrill to do what they're doing. Look in text number eight. A Jew can argue, practically, why is it important for me to know that the redemption will arrive someday? I need to do my work, fulfill what God instructs me to do. It's not my business to be concerned with greater objectives and result of my service. And this is actually, I have to tell you, this is an approach. There are certain people that believe and say, let me just study Torah, let me just do mitzvahs, don't bother me about Mashiach, that, that, or the other, let me just do my job. What's the fallacy of this approach? Should be self-understood. But here's an illustration. Imagine a soldier in the midst of a battle standing up and saying, it's not my business to know why my commanding officer gave me an order to fire my weapon. All that is important that I meticulously follow the orders handed down by the chain of command. The fact that my actions impact the income of the battle, causing the enemy to retreat and bringing my side closer to victory is irrelevant to me. I just need to shoot my rifle. The soldier, even if he dutifully executes every order he is given, will lack morale and passion. Moreover, without doubt, to one degree or another, it will negatively impact his performance on the battlefield. The same is true regarding our service of God through Torah and Mitzvah's observance. We cannot claim that it is not our concern whether or not service affects our long-awaited victory. We must know that there is a campaign underway and that it is our mission to bring it to a successful conclusion. We must be keenly aware of the reality that with each additional mitzvah, we reveal more godliness in this world, thereby moving a step closer to that ultimate triumph. A partner versus an employee, it's not only about 501, but it's also even more so. The partner understands and realizes the mission of why it is. The employee has a job description. He focuses, I was told to stack the shelves, I stack the shelves, I stack them neatly, meticulously, every single thing. The partner says, why am I stacking the shelves so meticulously? Because I want to attract customers, I'm results-based. An employee is reward-based, as we're soon going to go into the next step. An employee looks at it and says, one second, I'm going to get paid, I have to do my job, and in order for me to get my job, my manager is soon going to see if I stack the shelves properly. The same manager can be a partner who's also stacking the shelves. But he's stacking the shelves because I need, the, I need the customer to find the item. Because he's looking at how is the customer going to find the item. It's a whole different perspective. He has the mission statement in mind. He's looking what the outcome is going to be. Everything he does is driven by the goal of the company. The goal is customer satisfaction. I'm going to make sure this is the way the customer should see it first. He should be happy with it. The employee is doing it because I did the only way I'm going to get my check. If I throw the item, I'm not going to get my check. Another difference is between the employee mentality and the partner mentality. Employee does their job and is compensated. And this goes back to what we spoke about before in the reward model and the results model. An employee does his job because he knows he's going to get paid. He's rewarded for it. And, a, and a, uh, um, the partner looks at the results. He's always looking at the goal. He's always looking what the, how closer to my results that I get. The same idea is when we look at a mitzvah. We can look at the mitzvah that the Torah gave us as rules and regulations. I got to follow it. And if I follow it, I get brownie points. I don't follow it, boy, am I going to burn. That's one way of looking at it. Either I get paid or I don't get paid. 
And this is sometimes the common practice of religion. And we look at religion as the do's and don'ts, and there's the big boss upstairs, and if I misbehave, boy, am I going to get hurt. And if I believe it, then it'll work for me. If I don't believe it, it doesn't work for me. The common denominator is, there's a gain, there's a common gain or a common loss. What does a partner do? A partner is not in it because I'm going to gain or lose, not because I'm going to get a reward, because I have a goal in mind, results. I'm result-oriented. Even if today I went down, but if this helped me, and that's why a partner will sometimes give a customer, well, he'll lose from the customer, but he's going to gain in the long run because it's customer satisfaction, what the reputation's going to be, and so on and so forth. An employee doesn't see that. An employee says, one second, what's the bottom line? Am I going to go home with the payment or not? The same idea is the way we view the mitzvahs. Do we view the mitzvahs as because I'm here to collect brownie points or I'm afraid of getting beaten in hell? Or do I look at the reward as because I'm a partner with God? God depends on me and making himself a home. And I got to do my job because I also won't be a home for God. It's a whole different perspective. I'm not anymore counting the punishments and, 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 and warnings. I'm not here to collect brownie points. We learn in Ethics of Our Fathers in chapter 1, Antigonus of Soho, in text number 9. We see the tradition from Shimon the Righteous. He would say, Do not be a servant to serve their master for the sake of the reward. Rather be a servant to serve their master for the sake of the reward. For, not for the sake of the reward. The Judaism looks at our relationship with God as a partnership. And a partner means that we assume ownership of our goals and objective, objectives in this partnership. When we see Mashiach as actually happening as a result of our partnership, it changes our idea. If I see Mashiach as a result of my mitzvah, it's not that my mitzvah is a reward, that I'm going to get something later on, but this is actually going to bring it. It's a result. How much more in tune am I to make sure I do that mitzvah? Or how much more effective am I when I do the mitzvah? So if we look at it, to summarize what we have over here is, we have an employer versus a partner. Oops, I messed up too far. That's not employing Ikea. Huh? <laughs> an employer versus a partner. The employee mindset focuses on the job description, which is reward-oriented. A partner focuses on the company mission statement, which is then results-oriented, which takes us to the next step. One more feature and one more benefit of a partner mentality is the confidence in the success of the enterprise. We already discussed before that the belief of Mashiach is listed amongst the 13 principal foundations of beliefs in Judaism, on par with the belief in God and divinity of the Torah. But if you look at all the different animamins and all the different beliefs that, that the Maimonides talks about, when he talks about the coming of Mashiach, he uses a different terminology. Look at the following three texts from Maimonides. Unbelievable. Maimonides says as follows. Text number 10a. The twelfth foundation of Jewish belief is the era of Mashiach, that is, to believe and affirm that he will come and do not think he will be delayed. In the words of the prophet Habakkuk, if he tarries, expectantly await him. Text number 10b. Anyone who does not believe in the or does not expectantly await his coming denies not only in other prophets, but also in the Torah of our teacher Moses. 
And then finally, the 13 principles of faith, he says as follows, I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach, although he may tarry, I expectantly await his coming every day. What's the common thing in these three texts? You need to anticipate the coming of Mashiach. It's fundamental that we don't only believe that Mashiach will eventually come. Okay, when he comes, very nice, beautiful. Judaism says you need to anticipate the coming of Mashiach. That's why it's an implication. When you see it eight times just in the Amidah itself. And the implication is that a person who believes that Mashiach will come one day, that's not good enough. You've got to anticipate. This is also, we find, a story, interesting story in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us about Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Listen to this story, text number 11. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi met with Elijah the prophet and asked him, When will Mashiach come? Elijah responded, Go and ask him. Where is he located? At the gateway of the city of Rome. But what side can I recognize him? He asked, He is sitting amongst the poor people who suffer from illnesses. All the others untie their bandages at once and then rebandage all of them together, where he unties and rebandages each wound separately, thinking, perhaps I will need to immediately bring the redemption, and I must not be delayed. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi went to him and greeted him, Peace upon you, my master and teacher. Mashiach responded, Peace upon you, the son of Levi. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi asks Mashiach, Master, when will you come? And what does Mashiach respond? Today. Rabbi Yeshua Balevi went back to Elijah and complained. He lied to me. He told me he's coming today. And look, we're still here. He didn't come. Elijah responded, This is what he told you. Today, if you will listen to my voice. Was Mashiach playing on a catch of words with Rabbi Yeshua Balevi? Was Mashiach telling him, you know, playing with him, telling him half sentences? Absolutely not. What Mashiach was telling him is today that you as a Jew and we as Jews have to anticipate Mashiach's coming as if it's going to be today. That we resort and all of a sudden we have to go. Mashiach was sharing his mindset. And he's telling him like in the first part of the story Mashiach was taking one bandage off at a time because Mashiach believed that it can be any moment. He wasn't just playing with words and finding verses to make it work. He says, yes, the belief of Mashiach is not something foreign, not something distant, but a reality. A reality that I have to anticipate for. But is this realistic? It's one thing to believe that things may happen. It's quite another to expect and to anticipate that it should happen immediately. So as we discussed already in Lesson 1, we can see that the world is already evolving and coming to a messianic prophecies, and therefore to expect Mashiach any day, doesn't seem so out of the box. But yet, to make it a foundation of Judaism, how does this work? And this takes us back to the partner reality that God says and asks of all the Jewish people, that we should be partners with God. What's the difference between a partner and an employee, as we mentioned? A partner is results-based, while an employee is reward-based. And the third, or that was, and which brings us to the third part, which is a partner believes in the success of the endeavor. The reason why a person goes into business or opens up a business is because he believes he's going to be successful. When I hire somebody to work for me, he doesn't have to believe in the mission. I need to make a few bucks, I'll go do the job. 
And do I think it's going to make money? That's not my job. My job is to make a few dollars. That's an employee. But a partner? Why do I become a partner in your business? Because I believe in your product. I know that you're going to be successful. And if today I'm not successful, tomorrow I'm going to be successful. And I'm not going to give up until I'm successful. Because that's what a partner is. This is also the deeper meaning of what it is over here. When we look at a mitzvah, as a result base, we're part of the, we are part of the mission. We are going to look and say, yes, I know this is going to work. The question still is, how do we know that this enterprise is going to succeed? How do I know it's going to succeed? I want to be a partner with God. But 2,000 years we're in exile and we still haven't been successful. So how do I know it's going to succeed? So the simple answer, of course, is God created the world. He created the home, the goal. He sets the goalposts. And being that we know that He set the goalposts, we know we're going to succeed because we're doing it with God. We're not doing it on its own. And God promised us that the more we do it, the closer we get, and the ultimate is going to happen. But there's something deeper. Something deeper that goes to the heart of every reality, to every, to the point of what we're talking about the whole time. And what we're saying is, what's our question? Is this realistic? The question is, what is reality? How do you define reality? And as we spoke about before, this world is a world of concealment. In other words, the reality that we experience is not necessarily what it is, but it is a concealment. That means what we are calling a reality is calling a piano maybe a block of wood, not the musical instrument that it's meant to be. In other words, the world that God created embodied not one, but two different realities. A reality that we see on the surface, this block of wood that you can call for a woodpecker pecking on it. For a carpenter, it's a nice piece of place to put his furniture. But for the musician, there's a deeper reality. This is an instrument that makes music. The inner truth of our world is that it's a perfect home for God. That God created the world where the Spirit of God, like we spoke about in the beginning of last week's class, that when God created the world, He created it, that the Spirit of God hovers over the world. There's a deeper reality that we may not be seeing and touching right now, but it's definitely happening. Once we understand that there's an inner truth, once we understand that there's something that I'm not necessarily touching because of this concealment of the world, this utopian reality is not just a dream, but it becomes perfectly makes sense. And all it needs is for us to recognize that this is a piano, not a piece of wood. That this is a beautiful instrument, not just a place to put some pictures. We spoke about the Medrash, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the Medrash said, this is the Spirit of the, the soul of Mashiach. Another commentator explains as follows. Text number 12. The Torah states that the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters referring to the soul of Mashiach. This informs us that the soul of Mashiach has been standing at the ready ever since the six days of creation. It hovers over the water held back until we return to God as it is stated today if you will listen to our voice. Over here we see very clearly the difference between why God tells us He wants us by doing a mitzvah. We become partners in the creation of the world. Number one, 
Let's go through the difference. The employee mindset focuses on the job description and is reward or intent. And number three, doesn't need to believe in the enterprise's success. While a partner focuses on the company's mission statement, is results-oriented, and if you don't think you're going to be successful, you shouldn't be a partner in this. The reason why you're a partner is because you anticipate and you know that it's going to be successful. When we look at the world at the reality, we know it's going to be successful because from the moment that God created the world, it is ready for Mashiach. The reality is there. It's only about us peering off that concealment, getting to see it properly. And we are certain of that success because it's there already. It's not something we need to create. It's there. We just need to reveal it. The piano is there. We just need to know how to use it. There's no person in recent memory that lived this reality and more powerful than the Rebbe. I remember the Rebbe sitting by a Hasidic Fabrengen on Shabbos afternoon. And the Rebbe would say, we're now going to make the grace after meals. And, we should, and hopefully even before Shabbos finishes, Mashiach will already be here, so we'll be able to daven Meir in Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe lived the life of Mashiach, lived in anticipation for Mashiach. The Rebbe wrote in a letter that as a child, he always fantasized and dreamed about what the world was going to be in this anatopian manager of Mashiach. Every initiative, every talk, everything the Rebbe did was saturated with this anticipation for the immediate coming of Mashiach. And the following is an excerpt of a talk of the Rebbe which illustrates the Rebbe's way of thinking. It's a little bit long, so follow along. We have been discussing the redemption and the era of Mashiach. Some in the audience are genuinely astounded at this. Although for obvious reasons they don't openly voice their amazement. The Rebbe is now talking about that people complain. Why the Rebbe has to talk so much about Mashiach? And he says as follows. How can an individual appear in public week after week and repeatedly and unceasingly discuss a single subject, the coming of Mashiach? Moreover, this individual emphasizes that he's not merely discussing the published Torah materials on the topic. Rather, he's discussing a righteous Mashiach, actual coming in our tangible reality. Here on physical earth. And immediately, on this very day, Shabbos, Parshish, Pinchas, 57.44. This individual further, Rebbe is talking about himself. This individual further instructs others to sing on each every occation. May the Holy One build the Holy Temple speedily in our days. And he points out that speedily in our days doesn't refer to, refers to speedily, today. Now certainly every Jew believes that Mashiach can come at any moment in keeping with one fundamentals of Jewish faith states. I await his coming every day. Nevertheless, they wonder, how is it justifiable to discuss this topic without let-up and to emphasize on each occasion that Mashiach can come at every moment? Isn't it rather challenging to expect people to relate to Mashiach imminence as if it were a tangible fact or reality? So why does this individual speak instant, instant, uh, incessantly I'm sorry, about this on every occasion? and with such single-minded intensity, and in so forcefully, rammed the idea into the minds of the listeners. The Rebbe is talking about the complaint that people talk about, that say about him. Their conclusion is, that all this beautiful dr- is a beautiful dream, as we recite in our prayers, may all my dreams be positively fulfilled for me and for all of Israel. Nice, but not realistic. If so, they claim, there is truly no point in discussing one's dreams at such length, and with such frequency. The truth, however, is precisely the opposite. 
Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi delivered a discourse based on the verse, when God returns to exile Israel, we shall be those who have dreams. He explained that our current state of exile is compared to a dream, because in a dream, one's sense of perception can tolerate the most contradictory and irrational things. In other words, our current reality is a dream, whereas the world of Mashiach is the true reality. In a single moment, the situation can be reversed from one extreme to the other. We can awaken from the dream of exile and enter the true reality, the actual state of redemption. If so, each and every individual present in this room certainly has the ability to make the redemption come immediately, not tomorrow or in the near future, but right now on this Shabbos Parshas Pinchas 5744, before we even have a chance to recite the afternoon prayers, simply stated, in this very moment, we open our eyes, see Mashiach in flesh with us here in this room. The Rebbe tells us and changes the whole situation on its face. He says the dream is what we're living. And instead we need to open our eyes and see the truth. There's two realities. We're caught and caught up in thinking that this piano is a block of wood to hold pictures while it's a beautiful instrument. And all we need to do is open our eyes and see the beauty. We have the result in front of us. The reality is there. It's not far-fetched. It's there. We just need to open up our eyes. What we're blinded by is that we're in this dream that's going and looking and, and getting go caught up in the dream that we don't realize it's time to wake up and see the real reality. Next week, we will talk about a whirlwind, a tour of thousands of years of human history, looking back at the Egyptian bondage, Mount Sinai, the Holy Temples, and all the different exiles. In two weeks, yes. Next class, I should say. We'll be focusing and seeing how all these repetitive patterns in history lead to one thing. It's telling us that the time of Moshiach is about the path. It's unlocking the path to redemption. Any questions? So now we know why we do a mitzvah. Yes. So I'm going to answer it in short, but that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week. But in short is, in, in short, we're like a midget standing on a giant's shoulders. And we're going to see next week, starting from the Egyptian bondage, which was the first exile, to the exile that we're currently, how they're all part of a chain reaction that unlock this path to the redemption. So it's a cumulative. You're not starting from scratch. Just to answer you in short. You're starting from the height of the giant. Yeah, from the shoulder of the giant.